Exodus chapter 33. Before we read the passage that we have today, let me say something um, about what we have seen in chapter 32 um, to help us appreciate the the flow of the story. Um, We had said early on that you really need to read chapters 32 through 34 as a a unit, um, as a self-conscious Um, single story, yes, with different developments in the events, but starting at one place and leading you to a certain end point. Yes, of course, that ties in with the bigger picture of Exodus, but uh, 32 through 34 is something of a mini unit. And so from 32 to where we are today, here's what we've seen. In chapter 32, it starts off with the people's sin, in creating the golden calf as an idol that they then bow down to worship and attribute um, their respect and their honor and apparently are expecting that because of Moses' absence with the Lord up on the mountain, because they have become impatient, now this God will lead us to where we need to go. It is not only an act of idolatry, but viewed in the context of chapter 32, it's seen and treated by the Lord as an act of breaking covenant with him. Before Moses has even come down the mountain to deliver all of the instructions about the tabernacle, the fullness of God's word to his people, they have already strayed and turned and chased after other gods. As is the case with any sin, but in particular with this heinous sin, God's wrath burns, and he declares to Moses that he intends to let his anger burn and consume his people, that he will destroy them and wipe them out, and he'll start over again with Moses. Moses, interceding on behalf of the people, puts all of his effort and weight and pleading into the ear of God, as it were, and so uh, as it appears, appears to convince God to withhold his wrath. God decides that he will withhold, that he will suspend his wrath. But when we continue to read through chapter 32, while God has suspended his wrath, it becomes very clear in the latter half of chapter 32 that his wrath has not been satisfied. So the first plea that Moses has is just trying to hold God's just and righteous anger at bay. And God does so. The second request that we have in the, in the latter part of chapter 32 is Moses now asking for the Lord to forgive his people. But 32 ends with God seemingly unwilling at this point to grant forgiveness. So if you go back to chapter 32 and look at verses 34 and 35, the last two verses... Actually, 33 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And that's where chapter 32 ends. Not knowing where God will settle in his response to the sin of his people. Chapter 33 marks something of a development in this 
debate or this discussion about where God is going to land or how he will treat his people. So, whereas before he has withheld his anger and yet not fully pardoned, here's where we are now in chapter 33. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate, or you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. Do you hear how this is still an open question? What is God going to do with these sinful, unfaithful people. Verse 6, So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Mount Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai, or another name for Mount Sinai. Verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent." Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you cause us to see in new ways that the nearness of our God is our good a good that surpasses any other thing or person that we could ask for. A faith that recognizes you as the greatest gift in the person of your Son given over to us for our sins to be reconciled to you for full and intimate fellowship by the work of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Give us insight and understanding shape and cultivate our hearts, soften us, we ask, so that we would see and think and live differently as a result. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. So if chapter 32 is dealing with or is focusing primarily on the dilemma of God's anger, it seems that by the time we have gotten to 33 that God is willing to suspend his anger further 
That is, we do not appear to be on the cusp of God pouring out retribution or judgment on the people and destroying them. And yet still, that doesn't mean that things have been made right. There still is a a feel as you read this passage that the people are not yet fully reconciled to God the way that they need to be. And one of the ways that that comes into this passage is over the emphasis on God's presence. Where will God be in relation to his people? Where will they find him? Where will he meet them? Will they find him? Will they meet him? So there are three things that we want to do here in this passage in verses 1 through 11. We want to try to see that until Moses comes back again, starting in verse 12, to plead with God further on behalf of the people, that in a negative or sort of a gloomy way, what verses 1 through 11 are doing for us is trying to convince us of the fact that not to have God is to be at a loss. 1 through 11 wants us to feel the danger of losing God so that when we come to verses 12 and following and we find Moses pleading and interceding on behalf of the people, we know what he is pleading and interceding for. So we'll do this in three ways. Number one, just categorically, in the first three verses, we're going to try to convince ourselves that our greatest blessing is God's presence with his people. Our greatest blessing is God. Number two, in verses four through six, without God's presence, we have no reason for joy and certainly no security. And number three, we have a mediator who guarantees our joy in God's presence. We don't want to leave on a downer. We want to say, oh, but there's hope for undeserving people like us. So number one, our greatest blessing is God's presence with his people. Number two, without God's presence, we may have no joy or we have no joy, no security. And number three, we have a mediator who guarantees our joy in God's presence. So come back with me to verses one through three. There are at least two things here that that clue us in right off the bat that things are still not right and not well between God and his people. One is explicit and one is more implicit, at least in the first verse. In an explicit or clear way, notice that in 33.1, when the Lord speaks to Moses and tells him to get up and to go, He says, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt. Do you hear that? Not, get up and go, you and the people I have brought up from Egypt, the people you have brought up from Egypt. This is reminiscent of the way that the Lord spoke of the people to Moses earlier in chapter 32. Your people, the ones you brought up from Egypt. 
right? The, the point in that is to communicate a sense of disowning the people. God may still be here, he may still be active, but relationally, he's remote. He has not yet come to the place in which he is willing to receive these people back to him, and he is certainly not at a place yet where he is willing to once again attach his name to those people. These aren't my people, Moses. These are your people. Get up, go. Implicitly, though, is the fact that this would be an early departure from Sinai. Right? We hear the statement, get up and go, and we think, oh, whew, God is not going to strike them all dead right there on the spot. He's going to let them get up and go, and they'll live to see another day. But that's not the way that we ought to read, at least not fully, what's going on here. Because for multiple chapters, what Moses has been doing on the mountain has is been receiving, he has been receiving instructions for the tabernacle that he is supposed to take with him down the mountain, deliver to the people so that they can make a tent, a dwelling place for the Lord to dwell among his people. Right? That goes all the way back to Exodus 25. Have the people construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Not anymore. Tabernacle is out the window. We're not waiting around for you to construct the tabernacle that I told you to build. There's no need for that anymore. No need to gather supplies, no need to gather the craftsmen, no need to walk through the blueprints. Nope, just pack up and go. We're done here. That, that's the feel of this opening passage. But then God says, when you get up and go, where you're going to go is you're going to go to the land of Canaan. You're going to go to the promised land. Remember earlier in chapter 32 when Moses is pleading with the Lord not to destroy the people, one of the things that he pleads is, remember the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How you would give them the land, give them many descendants? So, so here it is. Okay, we're, we're not doing the tabernacle thing. Get up and go. But where I'm sending you away from here is to the promised land. I'm going to fulfill the obligation that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just that he's going to give them the opportunity for fulfillment. He's going to guarantee the fulfillment of that promise. So he tells them to get up and go in verse 1. Go to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 2 I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. I'm not just going to bring you to the doorstep and say, okay, well, you know, here it is. You have your opportunity. No, I'll get you. I'll see to it that you get to the land, and I'll even guarantee that you get in the land. I'll take care of the enemies. You'll enter into the land. You'll settle down. 
in a land that is prosperous and thriving. You will have safety and security and fullness and fruitfulness. You'll have all of that. But you won't have me. There it is. Verse 3. Go to this land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate, a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. If we try to keep this intimate relationship going, you won't last another day. Therefore, I'll keep my word, I'll keep my end, I'll give you the promises, but I won't give you myself. How does that fall on your ears? What if that kind of proposition was made to you? How would you respond? If God comes to you and says, everything that you see in my word, all of the blessings, all of the promises, in this life and the next, I'll give all of that to you, but you won't have me. What would you do? I don't know that we are necessarily so crass or so calloused as to say, oh, I'll take that deal. I get, I get everything, but, but God is just distant and remote. Okay, let me, let me be clear. I want to make sure there's no fine print. I'm, I'm going to have a good, a good life. I'm going to thrive and prosper. I'll, I'll get a good family. I'll have a successful career. I have a good reputation, a good name in the community. I have something to pass on to my kids. I, I can get all that. I'll take it. Absent God. None of us would, would necessarily say that. At least I hope we wouldn't say that. Not out loud, at least. I think oftentimes, though, that's the default disposition of our heart, though. We are far too easily satisfied. We, myself included. We are far too easily satisfied with any blessings that we can get in this life and give far too little thought to whether or not we actually have the blesser coming with the blessing. Far too willing to say, I tell you what, God, if you are willing just to sort of stay at a distance, but give me all the good things that I want, we can, we can live with that. This is why some of you don't spend time in God's word. Your hunger and thirst for the Lord is not where it ought to be. This is why we don't pray the way that we ought to pray. 
We don't desire to commune with God the way that we ought to. And so we are far too easily distracted and satisfied by other trivial things. Five minutes in prayer can't even compete with five minutes of Netflix. So there is a way in which you can hear what God is saying to his people here. I will send you into the land. I will give you the blessings. I will give you the gifts. You just won't have me as the giver of those gifts. And you can hear this in one of two ways. You could hear God saying to his people something like, I get everything and God will leave me alone. That's one way to hear it. The other way to hear this is to say, I will get everything, but God will leave me alone. There is a world of difference between those two statements. Where does the emphasis fall? Is there an and or a but? I get everything and God leaves me alone, or I get everything but God leaves me alone. Hold your place here and go to Psalm 73. Look at verse 25. This is at the end of a psalm where Asaph is reflecting on the fact that it's the ungodly, the wicked, and the unrighteous who seem to be getting the best out of life while God's people, himself namely, are being shortchanged. They're not getting all those blessings that they want. And by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, the turn in his perspective changes when he enters into the presence of the Lord. All of this, he says, was troublesome in my sight to see that the wicked seemed to be thriving, but God's people were suffering from want. All of this troubled me until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And by the time you get to the end of the psalm, listen to what he says. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, and it will, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Is that your heart's cry? Besides you, I desire nothing. The nearness of God 
is my good. Let me suggest to some of you here today, especially those of you who may be going through a time of testing or trial or even suffering, that one of the things that God intends to accomplish through your less than ideal experiences is to cultivate that kind of heart in you. That when you see the loss of a family member, the loss of health, a job under threat, and while those things may shake you or may cause you distress, that you are still able to come to the end of the day and say, but I have learned that above and beyond all else, the nearness of God is my good. Our greatest blessing is God. Number two, without God's presence, we have no joy and no security. Look at verses four through six. If we asked ourselves, what would our response be to that sort of a proposition? I'll give you everything except for me. Well, here's how the people respond in verses four through six. When the people heard this sad word, by the way, that word sad there is, is the word that oftentimes in our Bibles is translated as bad or evil. When the people heard this bad word, what bad word is it referring to? That the Lord is going to send them into the promised land, but, but he's not going to go with them. When they heard that bad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. Because Moses relayed to the people what he had heard from the Lord. The Lord had said to Moses and Moses told them, you are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. Two things that make that statement especially unsettling. For whatever faults and flaws the Israelites have, and there are many, there is an appropriate response to that bad word that they heard. They did not say, Moses, could you give us a couple minutes to consider this new direction that God is going to take? No, they hear what God has proposed and they enter into mourning and grief because they recognize that they are losing God. There is no joy at this prospect. But even with the absence of joy, with grief and sorrow, with, with realizing 
It's dawned on us what it is that we have done in our sin and what we stand to lose. The Lord also says, take off all your ornaments, the nice, shiny, sparkly, happy things that you wear in normal day-to-day life. This isn't normal day-to-day life anymore. You take that off so that I may know what I will do with you. The verdict has not even been rendered yet how the Lord is going to continue to deal with these people. God may not have snuffed them out instantly in chapter 32, but he is still not in a friendly way with these people. He is still, as it were, thinking about what he is going to do with this mess of people and their sin. You see the deceitfulness of sin, how it works? Right? Moses has gone back up to meet with the Lord again the next day, the day after the golden calf, and he, when he came down, saw what the people were doing. The next day, this is happening the next day. So we're talking about 24 hours or less between the people singing and dancing around the golden calf and going into mourning. Twenty-four hours or less for the people to go from, I don't think we really need the Lord. We'll create a God for ourselves. To now realizing what it is that they have forfeited and being gutted as a result of it. People, do not kid yourselves. That is the nature of sin. It deceives you and me into thinking that we can get something that God will give to his people, something other than God or even better than God. And in the end, it always, always leads to heartache and sorrow and death. Always. Fickle hearts. What is God going to do with these people? If I'm an Israelite, I don't feel comfortable right now at all because I know, presumably, a little bit of my family history. Right? I remember the story about Lot and his family in Sodom and how the Lord graciously saved that family, and as he was bringing them out from destruction, Lot's wife turned and looked back, and God took her out for a wistful glance at what she was leaving behind even as she was being saved. I know the story of Esau, That man had the birthright. The blessings were his. He traded it for a bowl of soup. And when he went back to try to regain it, even though he wept over what he lost, he could not get it back. What is God going to do now? that we have turned our minds and our hearts back to Egypt. 
and that we have traded the greatest blessing in the world, God himself, for a fake cow. What is God going to do? We don't know. Can you imagine what kind of angst and gloom must be hanging over these people? And by the way, come back to the passage again. Look at verse 6. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Meaning that from that point on in the wilderness wanderings, they never dressed themselves up again. The implication seems to be is that they lived the rest of their time in the wilderness wanderings under some vague notion of unsettledness that God, holy and righteous as he is, cannot mix and mingle with our sin. What will happen today? How do you sleep at night? If we are Israel and Israel is us, how do we sleep at night? You can. You can sleep soundly, peacefully, because of Jesus. Hold your place here and go to John chapter 6. We have promises better than Israel. We have gifts and blessings better than any Old Testament saint because we have Jesus. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That is the kind of comfort and security that you cannot buy. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, by the Father's work, I will not cast out. That is not, the statement here is not that I won't resist them. I mean, that's true. The statement is that once the Father has given them to me and I have them, from that point on, there will never be a time in which I will discard them or throw them away. If you have Jesus right now, or better yet, if Jesus has you, you're safe. You're secure. You can rest your head on your pillow tonight after a miserable day in your Christian life and say, but I am no less safe and secure in the Lord today than I was on my best day. I'm still his. If you've been in our gentle and lowly book study, you would have come across this quote from John Bunyan where he takes from this passage 
and he tries to impress upon his readers the depth of security and safety that exists for the people of God in Jesus Christ. So he has this hypothetical dialogue back and forth between an undeserving sinner and Jesus. He's heard Jesus say that everyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And the sinner begins to think of all these reasons why that can't possibly be as good as what it sounds like. So he says, but I am a great sinner. I will in no way cast you out, says Christ. But you say, I am an old sinner. I will in no way cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no way cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no way cast you out. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no way cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no way cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no way cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no way cast out. What we have in the presence of Jesus is an anchor of the soul that holds us fast even when we fail and sin miserably. If Jesus has you, you will be his forever. Number three. Seeing the contrast, the threat, the danger of Israel losing God's presence, of seeing and understanding that in the absence of God's presence, there is no real way to have joy and lasting peace and security. We come to verses 7 through 11, and we say, but there is hope because we have a mediator who guarantees our joy in God's presence. Verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Skip down to verses 10 and 11. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. There are two things that this section does. It's very odd because it seems to interrupt the flow of the story, and it seems to stick out in a, in a disjointed way. Two things that are happening here. One, it is reminding us again of the dilemma that Israel faces. Hold your place here and go back to Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46. 
Remember, the tabernacle offering appears to be off the table. The blessing of the tabernacle is summed up in a good way in Exodus 29, 45 through 46, where the Lord says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The tabernacle was meant to be in the heart, in the center of God's people, signifying that God was there. He had come near to his people, and because God had come to his people, his people had the opportunity to come to know him. He was giving himself to them. There it is again. The greatest blessing that God can give to his people is himself. 33, 7 through 11 If the tabernacle is not in play, then what we're left with is a temporary tent that Moses would throw up on occasion in order to be able to talk to the Lord to get insight and direction. But notice the way that it's described in verse 7. Moses used to take this tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. Rather than God being in and among and with his people, unless something changes, God's going to be remote and distant. That's the best that they can hope for right now, a distant, remote God. But here's the other thing that these last verses do. It ends with a description of the unique relationship that Moses has with the Lord. The Lord does not want to spend time with his people right now. It appears that he is getting ready to set them to the side and to write them off and be done with them. And yet, while he will not entertain an audience with the people, who does he still receive freely and fully? Moses. So now the hope is, but wait a minute. As long as God is still willing to listen to Moses, maybe Moses can persuade God to do something good for us in the end. Maybe hope is not lost. We have someone better than Moses. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Moses enters into the tent to speak with God, to receive direction, and yes, as we'll continue to see next week, to plead and to intercede. When Moses stands up to go inside the tent, all the people outside, they stand and they look and they gaze and they watch this sight as Moses is entering into the presence of God. Acts 1, verse 9. After Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud received Jesus out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What is Jesus doing when he goes up in the cloud into heaven? What is he going to do? He's going to enter into the presence of God and he's going to take his seat, signifying, I'm not going anywhere. This is it. This is the culmination of my work. I'm not like Moses. I don't enter in and then come back out a little while later and then have to come back another time when the people blow it and I have to plead and intercede for them again. I'm always here, always. I never sleep, I never rest. I intercede and mediate for my people every moment of the day so that we can know, so that we can know for certain that God has not forsaken us and not abandoned his people. Jesus guarantees that. And if you have Jesus, you have that guarantee. That ought to make your heart sing. Let's pray. Take a few moments, if you would, just to reflect quietly in your own heart and mind on the truth that we have heard today. Father, how unfathomable your riches are toward us in Christ Jesus. We have only begun to taste the goodness of the Lord. And we know on the authority of your word that for ages to come, we will be singing and you will be displaying the riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, in our wilderness experience, in our wanderings, in our waitings to be home, satisfied, safe, and secure, not to lose heart, not to lose faith, not to turn away from the God who has redeemed us. But with all of the encouragement that is offered us in the person and work of Christ, that by your Spirit we would boldly approach you in our time of need, whether in sin or in weakness, in sorrow and in suffering, to find the strength and the security that we need to hold us fast in our faith. And do that, Father, we ask, so that you will make yourself look even more glorious. Do it so that Christ, your Son, will be highly exalted 
and do it, we ask, by the power of your spirit so that we would know and become convinced and assured that it is your power at work within us, working and willing your good pleasure. We praise you and we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.